Jesus raised three different people from the dead in the Gospels. The one we are most familiar with is obviously Lazarus, and that's the one we go to a lot. But there's two other times, and if you have a Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to put our finger in Mark 5, And Mark 5 is a, is a long stretch um, from 21 to the end. And then the passage I just read, Luke 7, starting at verse 11. And then you can go to John 11, which I'm going to do because I need to go back and forth and flip back and forth between them. All three of these incidents are different, but they have very common things. And sometimes they seem drastically different in the way Jesus responds to his people and the way he heals them, brings these people back to life, and the faith involved. And what I'm going to show you is that they're actually very similar. But there are three really main things that we can learn from these just about our salvation, our faith, and sin in general. Um, the first thing is really about sin. If you look at these passages, what's happening common in all three of these things, people are grieving. People are grieving not because of sin, but because of death. But death is a consequence of sin. We tend to forget that, but Jesus knows that. And when we see Jesus grieving, Jesus is grieving because of the cause of death, not for death itself. He is the resurrection and the life. All are going to be made alive again in Christ and either go to eternal damnation or eternal life, but death has no sting for him or for us because we're in Christ. Now look at, let's look at the other two parables really fast. And you just I want to just show you the grief that's involved. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. This is Jairus, and his daughter is ill. And there's also an interruption the woman with the blood emission. And Jesus heals her. And then as he's finishing up with that woman, people come to Jairus and say, oh, your daughter has died. Don't disturb the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, let's go anyway. So they go and they see everyone grieving outside. And this is what it looks like. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. This... this action of Jesus is one, this, what, what he, the way he behaves is one of confusion. I'm not, and he's marveling at just how over the top this grief is. 
When you look at John 11, we have a similar thing. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now he is participating. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. But the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now we know that he was close to Lazarus, but there's something more than just his friend dying. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead in a few minutes. It's grief at sin. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Sin came unto Adam. Adam brought sin into the world, and it's been passed down genetically through the generations to us. We aren't born innocent. We are genetically disposed to sin. And it's, you'll hear people say, oh, you've made a few mistakes. No, it's much worse than that. Everything we touch, do, think, say, is tainted with this selfishness, with this sinful behavior. And one of the consequences is death. Either earthly death, like we don't listen to the warnings, don't go out there into the hurricane, you'll die. And we go, oh, I'm going to be fine. Or just living life, you can live life squirreled away in your house, doing nothing, making sure you don't use knives, and you're still going to die. You're still going to get old and die, and they'll find you with all your stuff and your cats. <laughs> the, there's no, it's inevitable. 100% of people die, and it's because of sin. And that's the main point I want to look at here. Here, I lost my Luke 7 passage, but here I am. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. We grieve at the consequences of sin, but we forget. We don't weep, weep really over sin. We might weep over sin that we see in other people. Like if our daughters grow up and just go wild, I'm going to be grieving at their sin. But our own, we wage war against it. We're fighting against our sin, but we still like it. Our body still likes it. Our thoughts, our brains still commit adultery in the mind. Still commit murder when you're in traffic. You're still going through this. You're waging war against it. You repent. You ask for forgiveness. But it's still there. 
and we don't have massive parties, mourning parties for our sin, but we have massive mourning parties for those loved ones that we die because we can physically see death. We see it there. They say that the big crisis in a man's life is when he sees his father die. When he's at his father's bedside and he sees his father pass away. Everything changes. We have something that overwhelms us. Sin is something that even though it's completely provable, all you have to do is open the newspaper, turn on the TV. We even have newspapers anymore. But it's vehemently denied. Oh, we don't. It's just life. So we tend to ignore. Somebody's getting their hair cut next door. <laughs> so we tend to ignore the sin, but we grieve over the consequences of sin. Jesus grieves over the sin itself. He's defeated death on the cross. That will be defeat. You'll see that defeat tangible in the second coming. But sin is what he sees. Sin is what he grieves over. As he says, I would have all of you like a hen has her chicks under her wings, but you refuse sin in your life. You reject God because of sin. God changes our hearts to accept him. Our natural state is that of rebellion. We don't want God. The second thing that we learn is from the resurrections themselves. If you look at Mark 5, he's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. They went inside to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl got up and began walking if she was 12 years of age. Add that little, you know, it's not just dead person sometimes have eyes open. It's, she's, she's, she's alive again. But notice, besides the little touch of the hand, it's his words. His words bring her out. In the Old Testament, you have Elisha and Elijah healing. There's, there's, there's an incident where someone's brought back from the dead, but there has to be this gesture. I think it's Elisha. He throws himself on the body several times. There has to be, Jesus, just a word. Child, arise. If we look at John 11, doesn't go near the tomb. He has them roll away the stone. There's no magic trick. He doesn't go inside and rearrange things, get the, you know, the Lazarus double in place or anything like that. He stands outside and says, Lazarus, come out. Shouts it. He even prays beforehand. Not because he's asking God to do something. He already knows it's going to happen. He says, so that... I always like to read the actual words. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
Lazarus comes out. Once again, Jesus' words. In our Luke 7 passage, he touches the beer just to stop the procession. Young man, I say to you, arise. Exact same words he said to the little girl, except the gender's different. So if you looked at that in Aramaic, you would see almost the same things, but just have different endings. The, the different, different gender Hebrew letters. Same thing. It doesn't even touch the man. And the guy gets up, sat up, and began to speak, proving he's alive again. Now we don't know what he said. One of the things scripture does is it withholds Lazarus, this guy, anybody who's brought back from the dead. It makes sure we do not know what their experience was. God does not deem it important for us to know what the afterlife is like from the point of view of someone there. Even Paul who had a vision of heaven said, I am not telling you what that person saw, what I saw. All we really have is John's vision from Revelation, and that's what God wants us to know. So beware of the heaven travel log books that you'll get that are big, big on the market today. Once again, Jesus's words. How did God create the universe? With his words. How does he recreate us? How does he make us alive again in Christ? We are dead. We're born dead. Remember, we're born with a sin. We are born dead. We can't get up. Jesus makes us born again with his words. Now, we have Jesus' words. This is crucial. A lot of people say, okay, I know this, and then they don't pick this up again. But it's Jesus' words, even the black letters, because Jesus is God, and these people wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those are Jesus' words, too. And when the word is preached, the Holy Spirit changes the hearts of the listeners if that person is elect. And they're born again. They're regenerated. And the Holy Spirit gives the preacher the words to say. And as I've said before, a lot of the time, I want to read these words out loud to you. I don't want to take them home and interpret them and then never open this and give you my interpretation of them. I want the actual words to supernaturally have their effect on your heart so that the Holy Spirit will change us. So that's the second point. Jesus resurrects with his words and he does it now. Someone wandered in here who was dead and they heard these words and they were made alive again. That's the same thing as what Jesus has done to these people. 
They were dead, unable to save themselves. The last thing is about faith. Now, these people are dead. They don't have faith. How much faith did they contribute? Nothing. But we have this proclivity to read ourselves into the text, and really, the only people that we should read ourselves into are the dead people in this text because Jesus makes us alive and we're dead beforehand. But, if you'll notice in Mark 5, Jesus was finishing these words. People came up to Jairus and said, your daughter's died, don't trouble the teacher any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. There's an exhortation by Jesus to Jairus saying, have faith. So we then put ourselves in Jairus' role and we say, I need to have faith for Jesus to do this. And it's true. I mean, Martin Luther, faith alone. John Calvin, faith alone. That is what saves us. No works. Faith, having faith. John 11, when Martha comes to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So from these two narratives... It seems that Christ is demanding of the living, the living ones, the survivors of the dead, faith. And in our sinful state, what we think is, I need to have faith. I need to bring to the table faith. We do, but whose faith is it that we need to bring? the table. Is it our own? It would seem because of these two exhortations that Jesus is saying, yes, it needs to be our own. That's why we have the third resurrection narrative, which is actually the first one. If you, This is probably the first time you raise someone from the dead because when fear sees them all, that kind of tells you that nobody's seen anything like this happen. But I'm going to read this and just listen. When does Jesus exhort the widow to have faith? Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, there's, there's the only thing he said to her, 
Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Where's the widow's faith? Not there. She didn't even... Did she send people to go get Jesus? No. Did she send letters? Did she, did she, was she mad at Jesus when he finally showed up and said, if you had been here, my son wouldn't have died. And what about my husband? She's carrying on. That's what we do. Grief. They met at the intersection, leaving the town gates. She might not even believe. She probably doesn't even know who Jesus is, for all we know. But Jesus heals her son anyway. She's a widow. Let's say her, let's say her husband's name was Faith. It's gone. She has no faith. When Jesus saves his church, what does he do with his church? Who is his church? His bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And whatever is Jesus's, this is how marriage works, whatever is Jesus's is the bride's. And whatever is the bride's is Jesus's. A great exchange has happened. My stuff is yours, your stuff is mine. What did God take upon himself? What did Jesus take of the brides? Our sin. Our rottenness. He took it as if it were his own because the marriage contract happens. And then he gave us his righteousness and he gives us his faith too. We don't have the faith to save ourselves. We need the faith. It's through faith alone that we are saved. But it's Christ's faith. This widow is now married again. Jesus has given her the faith needed for her son to be made alive again. And that sounds kind of odd. And it sounds like it's at odds with the other two narratives. But actually, if you read the other two narratives closely, when Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, why would he say that to Jairus unless Jairus didn't have the faith? Jairus was about to listen to those people and say, yeah, what's the point? In the teacher coming to heal my dead daughter, she's dead. So he exhorts him because he doesn't have the faith. And then what happens with Lazarus? Martha may say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. But then later on, he says, take away the stone. Martha says to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? She said she had the faith up there. She didn't. And this is good news. Mary never says anything about faith. Mary just says the same thing that Martha did. If you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. And that's when Jesus weeps with her. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you need to have faith. He knows we don't have faith. And that's, that's a stress reliever. That's a, that's a lot of pressure off of us. Because what do we hear in the churches today? You need to have faith. God wants to do this amazing thing for you, but you don't have enough faith and it's not going to happen. When it doesn't happen, when you don't get your prosperity or your health or your wealth back, the blame is on you. According to this, Jesus makes dead people alive again with his own faith. It's still ours because we're the bride of Christ and the bridegroom gives us his faith. And with that faith, just like everything else, his righteousness. We don't have righteousness. We don't have it. And yet... We feel like we need to have it. Our sinful selves say, I need to earn this, Lord. And God said, I've told you over and over, you don't need to earn this. Yeah, but can I, can I earn it now? And then we get overwhelmed because we keep being told we don't have enough faith, we don't have enough righteousness. The righteousness and the faith that we do have are Christ's righteousness. I think it was John MacArthur. Somebody came up to him and pulled the way of the master on him because they saw him on a cruise ship. And they came up to him and they said, John MacArthur, would you consider yourself to be a good person? That's how you kind of start the whole way of the master dialogue. And he said, my righteousness is not my own. It is Christ's. And the person just went like, Good, good. Yeah, you got it. And walked away. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The reason we die is because of sin. The reason we are made alive again in Christ is because of God's word. And the reason we have faith at all is because it's Christ's faith. Amen.